Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Saying Yes to Women and Children, Contrarian Wisdom for a Fallen World. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 23rd, 2012. I recently enjoyed reading several volumes of Wendell Berry's poetry, especially his new collected poems, 2012, which gathers poems that were previously published in 11 different books from 1964 to 2010. Berry's 50 books of poetry, novels, essays, and short stories have earned him numerous awards as a truth-telling <coughs> gadfly. His vision is one of land and localism, the necessary and natural connection to the earth, its seasons of life and death, and how this power of place rightly shapes our lives. The many guises of the modern world separate us from nature and place, and so Barry contrasts the world made without hands to what he calls industrial humanity, which he considers an alien species with a death wish. His contrarian poetry thus finds its power in his opposition to the zeitgeist. He deplores our idiot luxury, our economy of greed, fantasy capitalism, fashionable lies, the destruction of mountains to mine coal, idiot politicians, the violence of war, and the imperative of technology. In The Contrariness of a Mad Farmer, he writes, I am done with apologies. If contrariness is my inheritance and destiny, so be it. Barry's contrarian strategy has a positive purpose. He's searching for a language that can make us whole and that can help us live as true human beings. To do that, though, we must deconstruct the wisdom of the world in favor of new narratives. And that's what the lectionary readings for this week do. They give us new scripts to write better stories about our world and ourselves. The book of Proverbs idealizes and personifies wisdom in women. In chapter 8, we read, Whoever finds me finds life, says Lady Wisdom, but whoever fails to find me harms himself. In chapter 31, an acrostic poem in which each verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet, portrays a multitasking uberfrau who does all things well. She supports her family, buys and sells land, makes profitable trades, and, above all, we read in 31, verse 26, she speaks with wisdom. And so writes Barry in the Mad Farmer Liberation Front, So long as women do not go cheap for power, please women more than men. In the epistle for this week, James contrasts a demonic wisdom from below, characterized by bitter envy and selfish ambition, with heavenly wisdom from above, 
that's peace-loving and merciful. And in the Gospel, Jesus reverses our normal ideas about greatness by saying that children epitomize the ethos of his kingdom. Three different times in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus warns his disciples about the tragic end that awaited him in Jerusalem. Betrayal, condemnation, suffering, rejection, violent death, and resurrection. All three times the disciples responded to Jesus with objections, disbelief, fear, and ignorance. They repeatedly demonstrated how badly they misunderstood the true nature of his redemptive mission. After his first passion prediction, Peter objected, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus rebuked Peter for trying to prevent his sufferings. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. After the third prediction, James and John asked Jesus for positions of glory. The ten other disciples objected, clearly worried that James and John might gain some advantage over them. In Jesus' second prediction in the Gospel for this week, the disciples argued among themselves about who was the greatest. There's a tragic irony in this because in the previous paragraph, the disciples were unable to heal a little boy. Whereas in predicting his death, Jesus signaled that his kingdom was characterized by self-sacrifice, the disciples were intent on self-aggrandizement. Jesus responded to his disciples in two ways. First, he gave them a teaching. If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. And then second, Jesus dramatized a parable. In a piece of street theater that illustrated his teaching, he placed a little child before the disciples. He then embraced the child and said, Whoever welcomes one of these children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Matthew's parallel account of the same story makes an interesting editorial change. There, Jesus says, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Just one page later in Mark's Gospel, the disciples rebuked people who brought little children to Jesus so that he would bless them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. To welcome a child is to extend the simplest of acts to an individual whom society dismisses as perhaps cute, but ultimately insignificant. Someone who lacks any accomplishments, greatness, status, or pretensions. And by extension, Jesus invites us to welcome every person in the same manner without regard for external measures of worldly importance. 
The simple act of welcoming another person in that way, says Jesus, is to welcome him, and in turn to welcome God the Father who sent him. Similarly, to imitate children is to understand our own selves in the same manner. Instead of striving for significance in titles, honors, and success, as if those might gain us favor with God or man, we enjoy the knowledge that we are simply human beings loved by God. To live as a child is to live free of the self-justifications that adults use to prove their worth and the very heavy burden of self-consciousness about our status. To live like a child, says Jesus, is the only way to enter his kingdom. Wendell Berry's poem, Look Out, urges us to say no to the deathly wisdom of the world in all its many forms. We do this, according to the poem, by looking out onto the world, and then, despite all that we see, going out into the world and saying yes to all that's good and true. I conclude with Wendell Berry's poem, Look Out. Come to the window. Look out and see the valley turning green in remembrance of all springs past and to come. The woods perfecting with immortal patience the leaves that are the work of all time. The sycamore whose white limbs shed the history of a man's life with their old bark. The river quivering under the morning's breath like the touched skin of a horse. And you will see also the shadow cast upon it by fire, the war that lights its way by burning the earth. Come to your windows, people of the world. Look out at whatever you see, wherever you are, and you will see dancing upon it that shadow. You will see that your place, wherever it is, your house, your garden, your shop, your forest, your farm, bears the shadow of its destruction by war, which is the economy of greed, which is plunder, which is the economy of wrath, which is fire. The lords of war sell the earth to buy fire. They sell the water and air of life to buy fire. They are little men grown great by willingness to drive whatever exists into perfect absence. Their intention to destroy any place is solidly founded upon their willingness to destroy every place. Every household of the world is at their mercy. The households of the farmer and the otter and the owl are at their mercy. They have no mercy. Having hate, they can have no mercy. Their greed is the hatred of mercy. Their pockets jingle with the small change of the poor. Their power is the willingness to destroy everything for knowledge, which is money, which is power, which is victory, which is ashes sown by the wind. Leave your windows and go out, people of the world. Go into the streets, go into the fields, go into the woods and along the streams. Go together, go alone. Say no to the lords of war, which is money, which is fire. Say no by saying yes to the air, to the earth, to the trees. 
Yes, to the grasses, to the rivers, to the birds and the animals and every living thing. Yes, to the small houses. Yes, to the children. Yes. For books this week, I review the new collected poems by Wendell Berry. Berkeley Counterpoint, 2012, 391 pages. Wendell Berry was born in 1934 to a family that had farmed Kentucky land for five generations. After studies and travels took him to the University of Kentucky, Stanford, France, Italy, and then the Bronx, in 1965, he bought his own farm near his birthplace. He's been tilling the earth and churning out books ever since then. Over 50 books of poetry, novels, essays, and short stories have earned him numerous awards as one of the leading truth-tellers of our day. This present volume collects under one book 266 poems that were previously published in 11 different books from 1964 to 2010, including all 11 of his famous Mad Farmer poems. It's dedicated to his beloved Tanya, to whom he had been married since 1957. Barry's poems are about the land and localism, our connection to the earth, its seasons of life and death, and how this power of place rightly shapes one's life. For the most part, though, modern society separates us from any sense of nature and place. And so the poems of this curmudgeonly berry find their power in his contrariness to the zeitgeist. Economic plunder, the imperative of technology, environmental degradation, military violence and political power have corroded our communities and shriveled our souls. In his questionnaire, he invites us to answer a few questions. Listen to the poem Questionnaire. 1. How much poison are you willing to eat for the success of the free market and global trade? Please name your preferred poisons. Number two, <clears throat> for the sake of goodness, how much evil are you willing to do? Fill in the following blanks with the names of your favorite evils and acts of hatred. Number three, what sacrifices are you prepared to make for culture and civilization? Please list the monuments, shrines, and works of art you would most willingly destroy. In the name of patriotism and the flag, how much of our beloved land are you willing to desecrate? List in the following spaces the mountains, rivers, towns, farms you could most readily do without. And number five, state briefly the ideals, ideas, or hopes, the energy sources, the kinds of security for which you would kill a child. Name, please, the children whom you would be willing to kill. 
From this national madness, the mad farmer quietly walks away and returns to the small country he calls home. This is a smaller place of family and friends, work and rest, blessing and sorrow, woodlands and crops, where one goes into the care of neighbors and into the care of neighbors. In these poetic elegies of a life well lived, Wendell Berry invites us to do the same. New Collected Poems, 2012, by Wendell Berry. For movies this week, I review Ayn Rand and the Prophecy of Atlas Shrugged, 2012. In 1957, Ayn Rand published a ponderous thousand-page novel called Atlas Shrugged. The critical reviews were uniformly negative from both the left, because it was so pro-capitalist, and the right, because it was so anti-religious. Even William Buckley's National Review panned it. But Atlas Shrug has never been out of print. It has sold a million copies and enjoyed popular success for how it ostensibly predicted all of America's putative woes, growth of government bureaucracy and regulations, collectivism and socialism, Ayn Rand, 1905-1982, was 12 years old when the Russian Revolution swept her native country and her father's business was taken over. After she came to America, she was an unap unapologetic bomb thrower who railed against altruism and in favor of what she called the virtue of selfishness. This documentary film charts the course of Rand's life and thought in the history of Atlas Shrugged down to the present day. For Rand, self-interest triumphs over self-sacrifice in her objectivist view of life. By the way, before he was named as Mitt Romney's running mate, Paul Ryan named Ayn Rand as one of his greatest intellectual influences. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. Ayn Rand in the Prophecy of Atlas Shrugged. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by William Stafford, 1914 to 1993. William Stafford was a poet and pacifist. In 1970, he was appointed Poet Laureate of the United States. Interestingly, he kept the diary for 50 years and composed nearly 22,000 poems, of which roughly 3,000 were published. The title of the poem that we've posted is called The Way It Is. William Stafford. There is a thread you follow. It goes among things that change. But it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread. But it's hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen. People get hurt or die. And you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. 
you don't ever let go of the thread. The Way It Is by William Stafford Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 23rd, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.